What if I told you that you've been taking notes wrong your whole entire life? Well, that was a little dramatic. But the truth is, when I work with students, they have no idea what they're doing when it comes to taking notes. Should it be written by hand or on the computer? Should they write down everything the teacher says or put it in their own words? And worst of all, they spent all this time writing these pretty notes with every pen color in the rainbow just to never look at them again. So in this episode of the Student Performance Podcast, I'm going to take a deep dive into the literature on note-taking and teach you how to remember every single thing you write down. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Student Performance Podcast, where we dive deep into the science of concepts you never knew had such a big impact on your well-being as a student. My mission is not only to transform your life in the classroom, but help you live a more fulfilled life outside of it as well. All right, everyone. Today we are talking about note-taking and more specifically, the cognitive process called encoding. Encoding is the first part of learning where you take a sensory stimulus, like a lecture or your textbook, and put it into your own words so it's easier for you to remember when you review it. And this type of learning uses something called your working memory. This is the type of memory that no one talks about that can substantially improve your grades. Your working memory is your fluid intelligence. It's a type of short-term memory that holds a small amount of information at the time so you can mold it and use it to perform cognitive tasks. Once that information hits your working memory, it can either be stored into your long-term memory or it will be forgotten. It can also work in the reverse. You can bring information from your long-term memory into your working memory to be able to perform executive tasks. Again, I wanna emphasize that this type of memory is very limited. It's the reason why phone numbers are only seven numbers and there's actually ways that we can increase our working memory, but we'll talk about that in a different episode. All right, so the reason I brought up working memory is because note-taking is a sort of offloading system that creates more room for you to conceptualize information. This is also called the Zeneric effect. And I probably butchered the name, but if you see how it's spelled, you'll, you'll understand. Um, but this is the premise that incomplete tasks tend to occupy space in our working memory. That is why planning out your day, writing a to-do list, and taking notes is so important because it tells your brain that the task is done and we can move on to the next thing. So taking notes during lecture allows your brain to free up space to take into the next topic the professor goes over. That's why you should never go to a lecture and not take notes. I remember I tried this out as an undergrad a couple of times. I felt that taking notes was distracting me from actually understanding what the professor is telling me. Can anyone relate to this? So I would go to lecture and really, you know, soak in what the professor was telling me. It made me feel like I was understanding the material better, which it really didn't, but then I would have nothing to review later on. Don't take my word for it. They've done numerous experiments showing that students who took notes during class performed better in short-term and long-term exams on the material they had just learned. This brings us to a fancy group of concept called the cognitive load theory. And this theory postulates that there are two things vying for our working memory. The first is called the intrinsic load, which is the to-be-learned material and is associated with the core learning. 
So basically, this is the actual material that you're trying to learn in a textbook or on your lecture slides. Then there is the extraneous load, which comes from anything that takes the student's working memory away from the core material being learned. This could be the way the information is being presented, this could be distractions, could be your mood and emotions. So an example of an extrinsic load taking away from your learning experience is when the material is being presented in too complex of a format too quickly. So you have this paradigm going on where you're trying to find the right balance of the intrinsic load and the extraneous load. We want to minimize the extraneous load and then modify the intrinsic load so you're not overloaded by the learning. Because if you have too low of an intrinsic load, you'll be bored and start to wander. But if it's too high, you'll be overwhelmed. One way to bring the intrinsic load down when you're feeling overwhelmed is by having someone guide you through it. So that could be doing a worked practice problem. Those are the practice problems in the book where they show you step-by-step step of how to get the answer. Or you go to a YouTube video where someone else is explaining it to you in a different way, you know, using different graphics and visuals and all that good stuff. Now, I know a lot of you get overwhelmed during lecture. This usually happens when you're unprepared in addition to the professor going through the material too quickly. You get these feelings of being overwhelmed, which is discouraging, and these feelings actually take up space in your working memory, making it harder for you to pay attention and grasp the material. For this reason, self-studying is always better than lecture because you are in control of the pace of learning compared to the lecturer. 99.999% of the time, the professor is going way too fast for you to understand what is actually going on. That's why when we're self-studying, we feel like we're going too slow and we're stupid because it takes us an hour to go through 10 pages of the textbook. Anyone relate to this? But if you are going through those 10 pages really well, you'll never have to go back to the textbook again because you already learned it really well in the first place. So you are putting in the work in the front end so you can save you time in the long run, okay? So now you know about the working memory and that you should be taking notes in class. Let's go over the how of note taking. First, should you be taking notes traditionally by hand or on your laptop? Now, this is a very heated debate in the cognitive psychology literature. I know people actually debate this kind of stuff, which is funny to think about. But let's go over the pros and cons of both based on the literature. The number one con of taking notes on your laptop is that it's a breeding ground for distractions, whether that be notifications that come up, access to the internet, you staring at the wallpaper of your dog, you name it. Students are generally more distracted when they're taking notes on their computer. But one pro of using technology to take notes is that you type faster that you can write, so you'll be able to take more notes on average, which has been shown to be better in terms of retention than taking less notes. However, you have to be careful that the notes you are taking aren't transcribed. And what I mean by that is if you're just typing down everything the teacher says and not putting them into your own words, then you're really canceling out the benefits of taking more notes. Lastly, the benefit of taking computerized notes is that it's easier to revise and condense after class. You can easily add pictures and figures from your textbook, which is crucially important to making your notes sticky and easier to remember. A lot of the times when I'm reviewing my notes, I just have a picture in my mind that explains a bunch of different concepts that are interconnected. So let's go over the benefit of handwritten notes. It's pretty clear in the literature that when you write something down by hand, you are able to remember it better compared to typing it. 
Also, it's been shown that when you write down your notes, you are less prone to copy what the professor is saying and put things in your own words because since writing is slower than typing, you're more prone to condense what the teacher is saying in a way that's meaningful to you. The cons of writing things on paper is that it's easier to fall behind in the lecture and they're less malleable for revision compared to type notes. There's actually a really cool experiment that was recently done at UCLA that compared the comprehension of five TED Talks from students who took notes by a laptop compared to by hand. And an interesting finding of the study was that when students were asked factual questions about the TED Talks, like for example, what's the state capital of California, students in the laptop and handwritten notes tended to perform the same. However, when the questions were turned into more conceptual, where they were, had to connect multiple concepts and use their critical thinking skills, students in the handwritten group performed better than the laptop group even when the laptop group took more notes and had time to review the notes before being tested. So for me personally, I like taking handwritten notes. I find that I can remember things way better than typing them on a laptop. However, like I said earlier, there are studies out there finding the exact opposite than the study I just went over. So you have to take these findings with a grain of salt. The literature tends to favor handwritten notes over laptop notes, but by no means is the evidence conclusive. But the general principles that you should take away is that you should not take notes on your laptop if you tend to be distracted and unable to focus during lecture. You also should not take notes verbatim of every single word the professor is saying. Make sure you are putting things in your own words because that will make it easier to remember. A happy medium that I haven't personally explored that much, but many people swear by, is using something like an iPad and an Apple Pencil to write notes during lecture. That way you are getting the encoding boost of handwritten notes, but also getting the flexibility of revision of your notes by adding pictures and allowing you to have all of your notes in the same place. So that's also something to think about if you can afford those modalities. Now let's talk about the different types of note-taking and which ones are best. There are really two methods of note-taking. The first is called linear note-taking, which all of you are familiar with. That's things like bullet point notes, outline format, or Cornell notes. Your notes follow a straight line down the page, right? Hence the name linear notes. And the second type of notes is called non-linear notes. The only time I really see people do this is when they're brainstorming. This is the type of note-taking that tends to follow how our minds and thoughts actually work. We tend to store related information in these things called schemas or mental frameworks. These schemas are locked into semantic networks in our brains. In these semantic networks, we have these things called nodes, which represent a concept. So for example, in a semantic network of metabolism, different nodes might represent glycolysis, citric acid cycle, and the electron transport chain. And then you might have some nodes within all those different steps, enzymes and regulation points of each of the processes. And these things are all linked by how they all relate and regulate each other. The cool thing about nonlinear notes is that they tend to cause a chain reaction in these semantic networks. Once you activate one node in your brain, it sets off a domino effect in activating the other nodes and you can understand how everything relates to each other. Someone who I've learned a lot about nonlinear note-taking and has a bunch of videos on this is Dr. Justin Sung. You guys should check out his YouTube channel because he has a lot of great videos about this. Now let's go over which note-taking method is best. 
The truth is, is there isn't a lot of research comparing different note-taking methods because our minds are all different and one method might not be best for everyone. It's like exercise, right? Exercise is great for our health, but there are so many different types and you have to choose the best one for you that's going to make you the most consistent. So note-taking is the same way. However, there's a couple parameters that have substantial scientific backing. The first is having a formal note-taking method that you use consistently is better than just winging it. The second is to make your notes as easy as possible to review because the truth is you're only getting some of the benefit of note-taking when you actually write them. The magic happens when you are reviewing them. But the better you write your notes in your own words while connecting different concepts together, the less time it's going to take to remember them. So one linear note taking style that takes both of these concepts into account is called Cornell notes. Now I feel like I was first introduced to Cornell notes in middle school and then I never heard about them again. But the structure of this note taking style is that you're going to divide your paper into two sections. The first section is going to take up about a third of your page and that's going to consist of questions that you're going to make up based on the material that you just reviewed. And the second section of your paper, which takes up two thirds of the space, is going to be made up of the answers to those questions. So some of the questions you wanna be asking yourself while you're reading and taking notes are, what are the key ideas? What are some examples? What are the testable elements? How do these concepts relate to what I already know? That last question, guys, is so important. Because if you can start connecting things, you'll be able to answer any question on the test they might ask you because you know how everything fits together. And that is crucial for improving your critical thinking abilities. This is also, in my opinion, the note-taking style that makes it easiest for you to remember your notes. All you have to do is fold your paper to hide the answers and then you can test yourself. Or you can easily convert your notes into flashcards. An interesting paper that came out in 2013 in the Journal of Education and Practice that compared the retrieval of lecture material when students took either Cornell notes, outline notes, or just copied what the professor said verbatim. Some groups were allowed to review their notes before the test and others were not. At the end of the study, the researchers found that the group who took Cornell notes could remember significantly more material than those who took outline or verbatim notes, especially when they were allowed to review the material before the test. Another study looked at a reading comprehension test between four groups of note takers. One group took Cornell notes by hand, one group took Cornell notes digitally, one took personal notes of some sort of kind, and the last group did not take any notes at all. At the end of the study, the researchers found that Cornell note groups outperformed the no note-taking group. The handwritten Cornell notes had the highest mean of all the groups. However, there were no significant differences between the handwritten and the typed groups, which is a pretty interesting finding. Now let's talk about mind mapping and the correct way and when to actually do it. The reason why this type of note-taking is so powerful is because a new thought or idea in your brain needs to connect or latch onto something that you previous learned, and mind mapping is a great way to display that. However, I'm gonna warn you, it's going to be difficult to start. 
We have been trained by the education system to use linear note-taking our whole entire lives. So switching to this non-linear type is going to feel a little weird. But I promise you, once you get used to it, it's going to be a very powerful tool in your note-taking toolbox. So here's the basic structure of how to create a mind map. In the center, you're going to want to have the main focus of the map. Don't put something like lecture one. Put the main idea of the lecture or chapter that you're taking notes on. Next, I want you to draw radially, right, in a circle around the main topic that are usually noteworthy characteristics. This could be headings of paragraphs or different titles of lecture slides. And then you finally have the lower level topics. These are detailed features and traits of the subtopic. These are not random facts, but link up to the higher up topics. For the most part, everything needs to flow and connect together. This is a very basic framework, but once you get more advanced, you can start linking different concepts together and you really could hypothetically have a whole midterm worth of material on one mind map. I don't wanna get into too many details, but again, check out Justin Sung's channel and there'll be a more detailed overview. So there's actually been some research, not a lot, comparing linear versus nonlinear note-taking. Specifically, there was one study in 2008 performed in the School of Science and Mathematics that compared eighth graders' science achievement when mind mapping versus a more traditional note-taking summarization strategy. After each group was trained in the respective note-taking strategy, they were given a multiple-choice test. The researchers found that the mind mapping group participants achieved a statistically significant and substantially higher gains than the students in the traditional note-taking group. And when the researchers looked harder into the data, they found that the students weren't able to visualize their notes better in the mind mapping group, but it was actually the quote unquote accurate links between central themes and major and minor concepts and using colors to represent concepts were the major aspects that differentiating the mind maps built by students who achieved higher levels of concept understanding, blah, 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 right? So basically they were able to connect things better, which is crucially important in test taking. Another cool finding I found in the literature is that it's been shown that when the mind maps involve pictures, that they generate more creative and novel ideas. And that's something we should definitely not forget. We want to utilize as many senses as possible when we're learning and taking notes. Okay, so let me run a quick walkthrough of my note-taking process because I think this will give you all a better idea of how to connect ideas. So the first thing I do before I even put pen to paper that probably none of you guys do is that I prime my brain from learning. And what this means is I do a quick skim through the chapter or lecture I'm going to be taking notes on. That means I'm looking at the title, headings, the figures, and start making connections between concepts. It's been shown time and time again in randomized controlled trials that if you prime your brain for any type of learning, your retention is going to be improved. Okay, so I'm going to be going over this chapter called Carbohydrate Metabolism 1, Glycolysis, Glycogen, Gluconeogenesis, and the Pentose Phosphate Pathway. So right away by the title, I'm going to think about in my mind, what are the connections between all those words? So I know glycolysis is the breakdown of sugar. I know glycogen is a storage molecule of sugar and gluconeogenesis is how the body makes sugar from precursor molecules. Pentose phosphate pathway, eh, I don't really know, but I'm sure it's based on the name. It's going to have something to do with a five carbon sugars and phosphate attached to it in some way. I'm not sure of all the steps of any of those words, but that's my foundational knowledge of the material. 
Now, for some of you, you might not know anything about those words or just know very, very little. And that's okay. You just want to have some ideas floating around in your head. So when you do take notes, you're ready for it. So the first section is glucose transport. Well, learning about that could be important of how glucose comes into the cell so it can be broken down by glycolysis. I wonder if different cells have different types of transporters depending on where they are in the body. Okay, next section, cool. Glycolysis, all right. Wow, that's a pretty dense figure on all the steps. That makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because it seems overwhelming and a lot to learn. Okay, let me not focus on that right now and just see which steps ATP is made in. I see that glycolysis is a little different in erythrocytes. I wonder if that has to do with anything of the offloading of oxygen to the cells since that's the job of red blood cells. So you see, this is only taking me a couple minutes to do, but this is getting me into a state of learning where I have already made these connections. I'm not writing these things down, but I'm creating a mental framework in my mind that when I do take notes, I'll be ready to write down further details on those connections. Let me emphasize again, priming your brain on a chapter or lecture should not take longer than five minutes. While I'm actually taking notes, I'm looking for high yield material or testable elements. And that concept is a lot, little fuzzy and kind of hard to explain. And one of my mentors, Dr. Pineset, has so many great videos on that, even just one recently he just put up on his YouTube channel. So I'll link his channel in the description down below for a more detailed outline of that. But I'm going to be asking myself the questions I talked about earlier in the podcast, which are, what are the key ideas? What are some examples? What are the testable elements? And how do these concepts relate to what I already know? But something I know that is always high yield and pathways are the regulation points and the irreversible reactions. So if I'm going through glycolysis, the regulation point is the enzyme PFK. So I better know which substrates up-regulate PFK and down-regulate PFK. Also, why is PFK a regulation point? Does it have to do with the energetics and the delta G value? Probably. Okay, if PFK is the regulation point of glycolysis, what sugar states in the body would cause it to be up-regulated compared to down-regulated? So these are the type of questions I'm asking myself while I'm studying. I'm trying to connect as many things as possible so it actually makes sense in the bigger picture rather than in isolation. I know this seems like a lot to think about, which it is, but the truth is once I get through the chapter, I'm not going to need to go through it again. I'll be set with my notes. And that's why I'm telling you that you need to dictate your own pace while you're studying. The professors go way too fast during lecture. You don't wanna to go too slow where you're diving into every single little detail, but you wanna be thorough enough where you don't have to go back to the textbook. This is very much a feel thing. The more you practice taking good notes, the better understanding you'll have of what is testable and what to focus on. So this chapter is pretty dense. So I'll probably choose a more linear form of note-taking to start so I can emphasize all the important information. And then once I have everything together, I'll condense my notes in a more non-linear form so I know how everything connects to each other. This is called higher order thinking. I'll also be adding pictures and figures because that's really important process to all this, especially for pathways. I think in a more visual way where I can go from step to step in my mind as I'm going through glycolysis, the triacid cycle, and all those really fun processes, okay? So I hope all this information has made it clear that the best possible note-taking strategy is making your own 
personalized notes. It's been shown through countless studies that we remember things better when we review our own notes, not ones given by a friend or even handouts by the professor. You should definitely try to utilize nonlinear note-taking whenever possible because it really puts you in a different type of thinking when you're constantly linking ideas and have a bigger picture type of thinking. Also, I hope you can see how going straight to pre-made Anki decks is not a great strategy because you are missing out on all the interconnectivity of your learning. The best case scenario with Anki decks made by other people is that you'll learn random facts, but you'll have no idea how they are related to each other. Also, they aren't in your own words, so your retention is gonna be compromised as well. Okay, so now I wanna answer some of your guys' questions about the encoding and note-taking process. If you want your questions to be featured, make sure to follow me on social media at The Real Student Mentor, as I usually put up a story before each and every time I film. All right, so the first question is one that I get all the time. Is it a good idea to annotate professor's slides? You should never annotate your professor's slides. Let me explain. I think it's great when the professor gives you the slides beforehand because it allows you to pre-read and prime your brain for lecture. However, usually what's on the slides are all the good stuff, the main ideas and the important points. And usually your annotations are just the accessory details to those main points. Meaning, the only thing that you'll be putting in your own words during lectures are all the scraps, not the actual testable elements. Remember, putting things in your own words improves retention, comprehension, and conceptualization. What you should do instead is that you should go through the slides beforehand and put the important points in your own words. That way you have a general understanding of what is going to be taught in lecture, and this will decrease the intrinsic load, freeing up some of the processing space in your working memory. Then, when you go to lecture, annotate your own notes, filling in the missing information and accessory details to make your notes more complete. This way, one, you're going to be more prepared before lecture and thus learn more during lecture, and you'll have everything in your own words, which means you won't have to review as much later on. The second question is, what should I do if I'm taking notes and don't understand anything I'm reading? There's another great question that happens to the best of us. There are a couple things that could be going on. The first is that there's some sort of break in your foundational knowledge, meaning is there a previous more basic concept that you don't understand that's prohibiting you from learning? answer is probably yes, right? This usually happens when you cram for a midterm and then forget everything a couple days after, and now you don't have a good knowledge base for the second midterm or final. So you need to go back to previous lectures and understand what you don't understand. This is going to take some time, and I know probably you don't want to do this, but this is fixing the real issue rather than putting a Band-Aid on a huge leak. The second thing that could be happening is that the content you're trying to study just flat out sucks. So you need to switch to a different modality. Well, that's a different textbook lecture, YouTube video, whatever it is, you need to switch it up. Remember, if you're studying biochemistry, for example, the steps of glycolysis are going to be the same no matter what. All right, so try those two things out. So this concludes the very dense, literature-heavy note-taking episode. You might have to go back and review some of the concepts, but understand the more tools you can have, whether that's mind mapping, Cornell notes, outline form, whatever you feel is best for you, the better. 
Do not neglect that non-linear note-taking strategy. That has helped me immensely, right? We've all been taught to take linear notes our whole entire lives. Now, switching to a non-linear form can help you interconnect different ideas and really prepare you on the test. All right. As always, if you have any questions about anything I said, put it in the comments, send me a DM on Instagram, and I'll see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.